So today um, is was the second day of trial. And, you know, the plaintiff gets to put their case on first. So today he led with his emergency medicine expert. I'm not sure if I should name him. Um, maybe I will name him later um, because, oh, my God. Welcome again to Doctors and Litigation, The Elders podcast series where you'll hear the truth about malpractice litigation and its impact on our lives through the voices of doctors, psychologists, and lawyers with first-hand experience. Today, as promised, is part two of Experts and Testaliers. If you haven't listened to part one, please do go back and do that first, as we're going to build on some of the stories and principles we talked about there. I actually recommend that you start at the very beginning and work your way through each of the podcasts. Now today, we're going to talk more about the impact that false or misleading expert medical testimony, or cannibalistic physician testimony as I see it, has on defendant doctors, and we'll talk more about what you might safely do to pursue justice. That is, pursue justice after your case is 100% completely finished. We talked in the last podcast about how seeking retribution during the trial can lead to witness tampering or intimidation criminal charges and the horrible turn that that can take. However, we are going to talk a little bit about what you can do during litigation and trial to help your attorney identify and disempower a medical expert test-a-liar, as Dr. Louise Andrew, MDJD, called them in the last podcast. We're going to hear more from Dr. Andrew in a bit, and we're also going to hear from a couple of other experts who I'll introduce as we go along. We'll get back to the story of Dr. M, who you heard in the last podcast, And as I promised before, we're finally going to talk a little bit about my case and some expert testimony from it. In 2018, I headed into trial for the second time, and I already knew then that I wanted to do this series. What you heard in the beginning is a sample of audio diaries that I kept as I went along. It's been over a year now since I recorded these, and I had them tucked away in a computer file out of mind, but listening to them now brings me right back to how I felt listening to expert testimony in court, even though I knew what to expect after my first trial in 2011. That process left me pretty wrecked, and I thought I was more prepared the second time around. Here's how I reacted after expert testimony on the first day of trial, after opening statements. You sit there, just listening to it and you want to let your jaw just drop open and say what the what they're totally trashing you and saying things that are just not true or medically acceptable or that anybody would you know who practiced regular medicine did not have some stake in this game would agree to that it's just nuts and so I can feel my rage building Oh my God. Um, so, and I, I, I remember this from last time. And so I thought I was pretty mentally prepared that I would be like this today. And at least I knew going forward, like today's not going to be a good day. My husband reminded me, opening statements are rough. You know, you're going to be okay. Just remember, like with the experts, you just sort of do whatever you need to do, but just go to your happy place. Try not to listen. And you do have to listen though, because you have to help your lawyer rebut some of the things that they say, but it's so hard to listen to. I just, oh my God, what can I say? Maybe I have a little PTSD over this. It's possible. And we'll be talking about that in the final regular podcast in this series called Life After Litigation, but that's a while from now and I digress. But I am definitely not alone in how I feel about this. People are livid about expert witnesses. They're livid about the fact that they've been betrayed by a colleague. They're livid about the fact that the colleague is perhaps raking in big bucks for doing what they see as ruining their reputation. And they also are livid about the fact that this is being done perhaps with a a cocktail in hand uh, during banker's hours at home for more per hour than any of us are paid. Again, that's Louise Andrew, MD, JD, and we'll be hearing more from her in a moment. But before that, I'm going to take a little time and walk you through my case. 
There's a lot of expert deposition and trial testimony that I feel could be educational for you. I've already mentioned the family practice trained emergency physician from Canada who testified about the standard of care of emergency medicine in the United States and the hematologist who lied about being board certified. But I'm going to take you through some actual lines of testimony from a neurosurgeon at my second trial that might illustrate a lot about how some professional expert witnesses operate. And I've asked a friend of mine to help play the role of the expert. So my name is Anand Swaminathan. Everyone calls me Swami. I am an assistant professor of clinical emergency medicine at St. Joe's in Patterson, New Jersey. I also am the managing editor of MRAP, and I lead our clinical educator fellowship at St. Joe's in Patterson as well. For those of you who aren't emergency physicians, MRAP is Emergency Medicine Reviews and Perspectives, a CME and education company that I'm an occasional contributor to. I'm going to put Swami on hold for a few minutes while I walk you through my case. I think I've said before, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll give you the essentials. Let me take you back to 2006. I was an attending in a community emergency department working nights. I was a nocturnist. I was usually the only doctor in the entire hospital. So I would be running my emergency department and running upstairs for codes or critical patients or airways, perhaps delivering a baby on L&D because we didn't have OB in-house and then running back downstairs. It was intense, but it was great. It also wasn't a place where it was easy to get an in-house consultation on anything at night. I was about five years out then, just really hitting my stride. And one night I took care of a young woman, she was about 30 years old, who came in with a complaint of pretty intense right eye pain. She had gotten up to go to the bathroom at night and walking back to bed had the onset of feeling sweaty and clammy and then this eye pain started. And it was associated with pretty significant blurred vision in that one eye and very severe photophobia in that eye. No diplopia, no loss of visual field or blindness, but pretty intense right orbital and periorbital pain with new blurred vision and photophobia. Now, her only pertinent medical history was that she had had an anterior cervical discectomy very recently at another hospital about 45 minutes away, and she was recovering well at home. She had no new symptoms to report regarding that. Her incision was fine. Her neck wasn't hurting anymore. And she had arrived pretty anxious and hyperventilatory, but that improved with oral Ativan. She was walking around in the ED. She was talking to people. She was completely neurologically intact. She walked to the eye chart where she demonstrated 2200 vision in that one affected eye and normal vision in the other. She balanced on the rolling stool for me to try to do her slit lamp exam, which was tough because of her photophobia. Her pupils and her undilated retinal exam, her anterior chamber, everything I was able to see in her eye was normal. Her extraocular muscles and her visual fields were normal without diplopia or nystagmus. I did her tonometry. She had normal tonometry, normal pressure in both eyes. I sent her for a CT scan of the brain, which was normal. And as an aside, we were not doing CT angiograms for anything except PE at the time at my hospital. I puzzled over her presentation for a while, and in the interim, her vision returned to normal. Her pain and anxiety improved, and she wanted to go home. The nurses documented her pacing in the emergency department while she was waiting for me to discharge her. I had evaluated her multiple times because I really wasn't sure what was going on. But, you know, thinking about it, severe blurred vision and pain and photophobia in one eye really ought to be an eye problem, unless it was a weird migraine, but the patient had no history of migraines before. So I consulted our ophthalmologist. And together we reviewed everything, including the scan, my various eye exams, the patient's overall exam. The ophthalmologist agreed that it was likely an eye problem and felt that the patient needed a thorough eye exam and suggested that the patient come to her office at 9 a.m., which was three hours after her discharge time. But she never made it there. Instead, she went home, went to bed, and about an hour later, she had a massive cerebellar stroke. She was taken then to a tertiary care center, now having ataxia, dysphagia, pretty significant cerebellar signs. And there she had another head CT, which now showed a cerebellar infarct. Several hours later, she had an MRI and MRA of her brain and neck, which showed a vertebral artery dissection, or VAD, And a while after that, she was started on heparin, which was the standard treatment for VAD back then. 
She was admitted to the ICU and eventually discharged to home. And now I didn't know any of this until I was named in a lawsuit a few months later. I was blindsided and I went through many of the emotions we've talked about in previous podcasts. Now, I will spare you the years of legal events and emotional trauma and skip directly to the first trial. At the first trial, the main argument was that I had failed to diagnose the VAD based on these symptoms and I should have ordered a STAT MRI, and that if I had just talked to the on-call neurology or neurosurgery resident at the tertiary care center, they would have told me to order an MRI and MRA of the brain and neck. The problem with that argument was really that A, she had no justifiable reason for an emergent MRI, and B, we did not have MRI in-house at night. We had a tech on call, and if at the time of discharge I instead elected to order an MRI, that tech would have had to come in, get the machine ready, screen the patient, do the studies, have them read, and there was no earthly way that was going to happen in time to diagnose anything before her stroke. Based on the presenting signs and symptoms, they really couldn't come up with an argument for me to have started heparin empirically, which was the treatment for VAD back then, but they did have that non-board certified hematologist from Yale say that if I had just started the heparin somehow, it would have worked so fast that none of this would have ever happened. Anyway, that trial lasted four weeks. I did win. Their demand in that first trial had been $28 million, and I was the sole defendant. I learned a lot in those four weeks about litigation, about myself, about my support system, and about the value of a great attorney who did his research and prepared me well. I learned for the first time that my attorney had hired a private investigator who showed that the plaintiff was actually doing quite well, and though I was glad for that, it was really in stark contrast to how the plaintiff's attorneys had portrayed her. But I tried to go back to my life. I wasn't thrilled about practicing medicine anymore, but I just tried to put one foot in front of the other and just get back to it. But then the plaintiffs appealed. And to make a long story a little shorter, the appeal had to do with that Canadian expert witness and their assertion that my attorney had biased the jury against him in various ways. Not about the medicine or the basic facts of the case, just a bunch of stuff to do with the Canadian expert. But lo and behold, in 2015, my entire verdict was overturned and I found myself going back to trial. And this time, the plaintiff's attorneys had changed their arguments. Knowing that in 2018, the standard for VAD treatment had changed to treatment with aspirin instead of heparin, they had a new focus. The MRI argument was abandoned because there was no way they could make that work. And they couldn't say that I should have used aspirin to treat VAD because that just wasn't the case in 2006. But they could say that if I had another reason to give the patient aspirin, knowing what we know now about aspirin treating VAD, that I could have accidentally treated the VAD, and again, none of this would have happened an hour later. Yes, that was their argument. So they first had to figure out why I should have given the patient an aspirin, and they decide this. Severe one-sided eye pain, blurred vision, and photophobia is often caused by a TIA, they say. And TIA is treated with aspirin. So I should have said, oh, this patient is having a TIA, given her an aspirin, and none of this would have happened an hour later. Or if I'd called the tertiary care center, the on-call neurologist or neurosurgeon would have immediately said that these symptoms were classic for a TIA and instructed me to give the patient an aspirin, and that also would have prevented her stroke one hour later. So they have secured expert witnesses willing to testify to that effect. These are not the same witnesses used in the first trial. They have an emergency physician, and they have a neurosurgeon. The neurosurgeon expert acknowledges on the stand that this is about the 10th time this particular attorney's firm has hired him, and that he has worked on about 400 cases in the previous 10 years, earning between $1.25 and $1.35 million during that time doing expert work. And over 75% of the 400 cases he had done had been for plaintiff's attorneys. He charges about $600 an hour and $3,600 for his deposition alone, which took about two hours. It wasn't clear how much he was being paid to testify at trial. So now that you know about the aspirin theory, let's see how it plays out in testimony. Swami, you're on hold for a long time there. Are you ready to read some lines? I always wanted to be an actor, Gita, so this is a great opportunity. I am ready to read the lines. Okay, you have to read them straight, okay? No editorializing. Oh, I'm going to do my best here. I have a hard time reading these lines. I read them once before, and 
they're tough, but I will try to read them exactly as written. I promise you that as I read every single line, I will be twirling my villain mustache. So I hope that's okay with you guys. (laughs) Yes, that's perfect. That sounds perfect. Okay, let's go. So I will remind everybody that unless I'm saying otherwise, that when we're reading questions, they are directly from the transcript. And I am going to play right now the role of the plaintiff's attorney. Doctor, do you have an opinion? What course of treatment a reasonably competent neurosurgeon or neurologist would have ordered if consulted by Dr. Pensa that morning before 6.43 a.m. on twenty six two 2006? Had a neurosurgeon or a neurologist been consulted by Dr. Pensa and informed of the situation of symptoms and signs that were identified at the time of Dr. Pensa's evaluation, the doctor, the neurosurgeon or the neurologist would be very suspicious for an ischemic stroke that was occurring and be very concerned to be able to stop further strokes that would be more significant and recommend giving an aspirin right away and to transfer the patient to a stroke center where a surgeon who had performed the operation would be able as well as a stroke team with neurologists and neuro surgeons to be able to evaluate and treat the patient to find out what was causing the stroke, as well as how to best treat the stroke with surgeries or medical interventions. Would they have ensured that the patient receives an aspirin before the transport? Yes, absolutely. Okay, podcast listener, just remember that this is severe right eye pain, blurred vision, and photophobia. Really not classic TIA symptoms, but this expert leaves no doubt as to what would have happened if I had called the neurosurgeon on call at the tertiary care center. Now, next question. The plaintiff attorney goes through all sorts of damages that the patient currently has and interventions that she's had in the past. And then he asks, doctor, do you have an opinion based upon a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to whether those interventions would have been required if she was treated with an aspirin before she was discharged on 26, 2006? Yes, I do have an opinion. And what is it, doctor? I believe the chances of her having a stroke subsequent to her leaving would have been reduced to 1% or 2% if she had started aspirin prior to leaving. That means that 98 to 99% probability she would not have had the further stroke and she would not have had the difficulty that she had and she would not have required the extended rehab and not required the medication managements that she's undergone and not required the surgery to place an electrical stimulation on the surface of her brain. He then goes on to list many, many, many more ways in which the plaintiff has been harmed. And then he asks, Do you have an opinion based upon a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to whether that would have been prevented if she were just administered an aspirin before discharge on 26, 2006? Yes, that would have been more likely than not been avoided completely. Now, note how certain he is, how emphatic. They actually train you to be this way in clearing houses for medical experts, such as the one he later said he belonged to. No room for doubt here. If I had called the neurosurgeon on call at another hospital in the wee hours of the morning, which, by the way, would have been the neurosurgical resident, if I'd called that resident for eye pain, photophobia, and blurred vision in the right eye, in the absence of any complaints related to her surgery, they would not have asked for any more data or more tests. They would absolutely have said, stop everything, give her an aspirin, because that's a classic TIA, and that aspirin would have, with 99% certainty, averted the stroke that occurred one hour later. There is no doubt in this expert's mind. The plaintiff's attorney and expert go on and on about how aspirin works and how it's like taking the bullets out of a loaded gun, his words. And they make clear that the plaintiff never had any other strokes after the cerebellar stroke because of the miracle of aspirin given at the tertiary care center when she went in with her classic cerebellar stroke. If only I had given the aspirin when I saw her, none of this would have happened. But there's a problem. And they know it. And we know it. And the problem is, the patient never actually got an aspirin at the tertiary care center. I remember the day after opening statements and initial expert testimony, my attorney and his assistants combing feverishly through scores of pages of charts, every handwritten medication order entry, every pharmacy record, everything we had. He made me look through every entry too, scouring the record for any evidence that an aspirin was ever given. But the aspirin wasn't there. There was, however, a neurology resident note several hours after the patient arrived in the ED that said on it, aspirin times one now. 
Presumably, he had discussed it afterwards with his attending, but that aspirin was clearly never given. She was started on heparin instead several hours later, after the MRA confirmed the vertebral artery section. Now, it's one thing for me to be rattling off all this medicine to other physicians, but all of this is really too confusing to lay out for a non-medical jury. A jury needs a clean path to understanding. It has to be simple. It has to be that I didn't give her an aspirin and she had a stroke. And the next hospital gave her an aspirin so she never had a stroke again. But this, of course, is problematic if the next hospital did not actually give her an aspirin. So the plaintiff's attorney comes up with a plan. And the plan is to convince everyone that the plaintiff was, in fact, given the aspirin after all. On the stand, the plaintiff's attorney asks the expert about the resident's note. And just so you know, I'm going to be changing the resident's name. Doctor, can you tell me the significance of this in Dr. Smith's note? Well, after his assessment and recommendations in the tail end of it, the recommendations, he says ASA, which is aspirin, 325 milligrams times one now. Doctor, what does that mean? That means that he recommended that the patient receive aspirin now, right away, at 11.30 in the morning. The plaintiff's attorney then asks what effect, if any, that aspirin had upon the plaintiff, whereupon my attorney objects, saying there is no proof that the aspirin was given, only the recommendation in the note. The judge then says, quote, well, offer proof that it was taken. Was it? The plaintiff's attorney chooses to ask a new question. Doctor. What's the significance to you of now, N-O-W, the word? Well, this is standard approach to a patient with a stroke that is thought to be embolic in nature, is to give a medication immediately to be able to stop further strokes from occurring. All right. And do some neurologists have a habit of carrying around aspirin, in your experience? At this point, my attorney objects, saying that he is leading the witness, but the court overrules. The expert answers. Yes, that's very true. Neurologists understand that a patient with progressive strokes is at a high risk of having a life-threatening stroke, and in an effort to stop that from happening, an aspirin is given immediately to be able to start the treatment to reverse the process of the blood clot formation. Do you believe an aspirin was given at that time? My attorney then objects again and is overruled again. The expert answers. Yes, I do. It's the intention of the doctor, it's a common practice, and it would be very likely that it was carried out. He goes on to say that neurologists typically carry aspirin in their pockets to administer to patients who might be having strokes because it's so important that they get this medication right away. His assumption is that's what this resident did with the plaintiff. And then there is a recess for lunch. I go to have lunch with some nurses I work with who have come to support me and to watch a part of the trial. They are all flabbergasted at the expert's testimony, and one of them very astutely says... Didn't that patient come in with severe dysphagia as part of her stroke? They're saying the resident just whipped an aspirin out of his pocket and gave it to her to choke on? That's nuts. In my shock at the expert testimony, that aspect had not even occurred to me. Of course, it was ridiculous. And after lunch, it was my defense attorney's chance to question the neurosurgeon. Doctor, I just want to touch on a couple of things that were just brought up, and then I'll get to some other questions. But one of those was you said that you believe the aspirin was given, correct? Yes, sir. And you first testified that the doctor recommended giving the aspirin. Do you remember that testimony? Yes, sir. And then plaintiff's attorney said, well, she did give the aspirin. Was the aspirin given? And then you said, well, yeah, I believe, or whatever your words were, that the aspirin was in fact given, correct? Yes, sir. And you said that was because neurologists carry aspirin around in their pockets to just give to patients. That's what they do? I was just saying it's a common phenomenon for neurologists, especially stroke team doctors, to have aspirins in their pockets. But aspirins are readily available in the emergency room and can be given very quickly. Doctor, would it surprise you that if a neurologist was just going in the hospital giving aspirin out of his pocket himself or herself, that that could be grounds for that neurologist to stop practicing, not be allowed to practice in that hospital because they're just dispensing meds without having it go through the proper channels? No, I've never heard of a physician being admonished in any way after giving a Tylenol or an aspirin in that type of setting, especially when they mark it down in the medical record. Don't they ask a nurse to go retrieve the aspirin? 
That's why they write it now. They don't say give it. They write now because that's an order that a nurse is supposed to go get the aspirin, document that she has got the aspirin, put it down, and then administer it. Isn't that what that means when the doctor writes now? I'm not sure what the doctor meant by now other than he wanted the patient to have it now. Okay, doctor. So you do not know whether, in fact, that aspirin was actually given, do you? You're presuming it was, correct? Yes, I am. Because of my experience with other neurologists in this situation, the neurologist would either give it himself or ensure it was given by the nursing staff as soon as possible, meaning now. So if the nursing staff, in fact, gave it, they would then write a note that they administered aspirin, correct? Just like the doctor wrote a note that he wanted the patient to have the aspirin, there would be documentation. Right, right. Did you go through the emergency room chart that I believe you have up there, which is Exhibit 5? Did you find anywhere that, in fact, the nurse documented that the aspirin was ever given? No, I did not. Right. You found that they documented that Dilaudid was given, correct? They wrote that down. Yes. And what other medications did they write down that they did? I don't remember offhand, but I do remember that the doctor noted that he wanted the aspirin now. Now, you can't see it in the record, but I remember the exasperated and maybe slightly entertained look on my attorney's face in that moment. The witness is just supposed to answer the question as asked, but this expert has to keep hammering home the aspirin. My attorney resumes. There is no dispute, doctor, that it says ASA, which means aspirin, 325 mg, which means milligrams, times 1 NOW, no question, that's in the chart. But there's no documentation that it was ever given, correct? Not by the nursing staff, no. The implication of this, obviously, is that the nurses just didn't write it down, but an aspirin must have been given. So my attorney proceeds to go through virtually every order in the emergency department record and every nursing note, like so. Then it says patient medicated per MD for pain and nausea, correct? Yes, sir. And then now, what's that say? I believe that says patient voided on the bedpan. So they even documented that the patient voided. That's how discreet they're getting in describing the situation now, because this is a patient who has come in and now everybody and their brother knows she's having a stroke, right? That's correct. Can you make out the rest of that line? Yes, neurologist is at bedside. Okay. That might have been when the neurologist gave her the aspirin. So you're assuming now that that's where the neurologist just whipped out of his pocket and said, here, take an aspirin. Right? Yes, five minutes after the neurologist wrote down that the patient was going to get an aspirin now. So remember, my attorney's instruction to me had been to look politely interested at all times. Do you think that might have been difficult right about now? Throughout all of this, I have wanted to scream that right eye pain and photophobia and monocular blurry vision is not a TIA, it's not a stroke, and no doctor worth their salt would have assumed it was. Nobody would have said before her actual stroke later on to give her an aspirin, and even then she never got one. And neurology residents do not, in 2006, carry around aspirins in their pockets to give to patients without any documentation. I am livid. And I'm also wondering what the jury is thinking. I want to look at them, see if they're registering what a farce this is, but I can't. I have to sit nicely and look politely interested. And as hard as that is right now, it's about to get way, way harder. Doctor, you talked about the aspirin and that you believe the neurologist would have just handed her the aspirin and had her take it with a glass of water, right? I believe the neurologist had a plan to make sure she had the aspirin then, and the neurologist most likely carried that out. Doctor, a woman comes in with a posterior circulation stroke, who cannot swallow. It would be malpractice to give that patient an aspirin and ask her to swallow because you know she could choke on it, correct? No. In fact, you're not aware that it is absolutely against stroke protocol, somebody who has difficulty swallowing, to give them something to drink or swallow? You're not aware of that fact? No. In fact, it would be important to test her swallowing capability, and by doing that, giving her an aspirin would be one form of the test. I sit up a little straighter in my seat, not really believing what I'm hearing. And I hear the voice of the nurse from lunch in the back say quietly, Oh my God. Which, by the way, you are not supposed to do. My attorney goes on. She's in the emergency room here, being evaluated, and we've just learned that she cannot swallow. And that doctor is going to hand her an aspirin and tell her to swallow it? That's your testimony? It's part of the evaluation to test patients' ability to swallow. 
I see. And then, so you're checking to see if she might gag? That's part of the evaluation of the patient. I have nothing further, Your Honor. So now you see how this can unfortunately play out sometimes in real life. The plaintiff's attorney comes up with a theory. It doesn't matter if that theory makes medical sense, as long as they can pay their experts to go along with it. They tell their experts the points to hammer home, and those experts do it. In my case, they all did it. Just keep saying the same words. Stroke. TIA. Aspirin. Stroke. TIA. Aspirin. Stick with the theory, no matter what. It doesn't matter if the medicine makes no sense, because the jury doesn't know medicine, and neither does the judge. You can imagine how frustrating this can be for a defendant physician who is already stressed by litigation itself, and how angry it makes them to really not be able to do much about it. I asked Swami what his thoughts were after reading the testimony. Oh, this is tough. So I have done expert witness testimony. I've done expert witness testimony on both sides. I've never actually been in court, so I've mainly reviewed cases and given my thoughts. And I don't love the process. I think that often the reason it isn't done well is because of the monetary incentives that are placed there. Um, The physicians who are doing this, many of them know that they can make more money doing expert witness testimony than they can working a shift. Um, You bill more for it. And so it becomes very enticing just to say, well, you know, instead of working that 10 or 12 hour shift, I'll just do a case. It might only take me four or five hours, but I'm going to make as much money, if not more than I would have made there. It's less exhausting. I can do it any time of day. Uh, There's all these different things that go into that. And I think that that's a really slippery slope. If you look at expert witness testimony as part of your compensation, as this is going to replace parts of my salary, my point is, I, I think that the expert witness system is is really broken, um, and there are a lot of physicians out there that don't care to throw their colleagues under the bus, not because they provided substandard care, but because they want to be paid. They know they say what the attorney wants them to say. They are more likely to be called back again and to bill again. And I've noticed that myself uh, from doing expert witness testimony, that when I don't give the attorney the answer that they are looking for, they tend to not ask me to do plaintiff work again. In the last podcast, we went through some sample ethical standards that professional societies have and how it does truly affect physician colleagues when they are not adhered to. But Swami brought up one other thing that I think we have to expand on more. I think that physicians should be going into this process wanting to see what is the standard medical management for the patient and whether that's what was lived up to. And I don't think that's exactly what happens. Often the attorneys go to high-level institutions, ivory towers, asking for expert witnesses. And I'm kind of pointing the finger at myself. Uh, I have worked in an ivory tower most of my career. Um, It's hard for somebody who's only worked in an academic center to say what happens in a rural setting, what happens in a non-academic center, what are the things that are available, what are the resources available to that physician, and what is standard practice. And the cutting edge that we often talk about on podcasts and things like that, that, that's not standard practice for most people. And so we have to recognize that. We may think it's the best management, but that doesn't mean that it is accepted standard practice for physicians. Add to that the fact that we are trained to judge other physicians and ourselves quite harshly. We as physicians sometimes are, are used to criticizing each other. We have M&M rounds. We used to call it the ABCs of M&M, accuse, blame, criticize. That was Dr. A, whom you heard in the podcast on depositions. He's right. It's our nature to pick apart cases that go wrong, to convince ourselves that something else could or should have been done. I am willing to bet that you listened to my case and have been thinking of all the ways that you or someone else might have done it better. But it's not a good way to think about standard of care, a point Dr. V made in part one. So that begs the question, what is standard of care when we're talking about a legal case? Here's Dr. Andrew. Most doctors don't understand the concept of standard of care. They think they do. There is no established standard of care in any specialty. It's a legal term that a lot of lawyers and judges and certainly juries think is a concrete set of ideas. Oh yes, this is the standard of care. But really, there is no definable standard of care that could be compared line and verse with what is done in any given case and to say, aha, this does comport and this does not comport. There is a generalized concept, and this is pretty well accepted in every state, 
that the standard of care is that which would be done by a physician with average competence who is practicing under same or similar circumstances. But that's a general concept. It's not a cut and dried black and white thing that you can compare with what was done and say this is or is not beneath the standard of care. It's very fluid. And although we may think as individuals we know what the standard of care is for any given um, situation because it's what we do or what our colleagues do or what we've read in the literature or maybe what we've seen in textbooks, uh, that those are not black and white. Those are just generally this is the way things are done. It's, a, it's a, another one of a number of concepts that are quite different when you're speaking about them legally versus when you're speaking about them medically. I make the point that we want to think of standard of care as an A+, when really, standard of care is a C. We are always striving for perfection. Uh, our professors always taught us to strive for perfection. Every chapter that we've ever read, every article that we've ever read is more or less urging us to strive for perfection. But those are aspirations. Those are not the reality. The reality is, as you say, not an A+, but a C. And a C is what the standard of care is. But if someone goes into the expert witness business still believing that what their professors taught them or what the chapters said to them or what the articles said to them uh, was the standard of care, namely perfection, then they're going to go into a case in which there was perfectly standard of care treatment provided from a legal standpoint, and they're going to say this fell below the standard of care. So if you are serving as an expert witness, not only should you adhere to the guidelines we talked about in the last podcast, you should understand that you may be an A-plus doctor and you may work in an ivory tower, but if you're quote-unquote grading another doctor's performance, the standard of care is a C, and a C for that practice environment. If you haven't worked in that type of environment before, you shouldn't be commenting on it. And of course, we all want to give A-plus care and also receive A-plus care. But it's a fantasy that that can happen all the time. But plaintiff's attorneys naturally want the jury to believe that A-plus care is the standard of care each time and every time. Well, that plays into a jury fantasy, which is that you will always receive A-plus-plus level care and that you should always receive A-plus-plus level care. And so they're pandering to, you know, the hopes and fears and fantasies of the jury when they push that particular notion of the standard of care. And that's why it's important that defense attorneys educate the jury to the opposite effect and that all expert witnesses understand what the real nature of the standard of care is. So my pie-in-the-sky dream is that someday, when you are named as a defendant, if you feel your care was in fact good, there will only be ethical experts to be found who understand the concept of standard of care. Wouldn't that be nice? But until then, you will have to be aware of the fact that test-a-liars are abundant, and that you may well find yourself on the receiving end of unethical testimony. So let's talk about things that you actually can do about it safely. First, what can you actually do during litigation to perhaps help your attorney? Well, for one, you can help them with the medicine and how to rebut what experts say in deposition or at trial, as I alerted my attorney to the fact that an aspirin should not be whipped out of pockets and given to patients to gag on as a swallowing study. But there are also a few other things that you can do. If you have an experienced attorney, they will of course know these things, but it's true that not every attorney has a lot of experience in medical malpractice defense. The first thing to do is to go to docboard.org, which is a wing of the Federation of State Medical Boards Administrators in Medicine program. And you can look up any physician in the country and it will tell you what state they're from, and then you can either go directly through that site or go to that state board site and look at what they have told their own medical licensure board they have in the way of qualifications. And if they don't have board certification listed there, and yet it is on their CV, well, there is an automatic 
falsification of credentials that can be used against them in court. Okay, first stop for your attorney, docboard.org. Next. To go beyond that, ask, are you currently board certified? So there's the issue of maintenance of certification and knowing what board they claim to be certified in is the clue as to where to go next to find out whether the certification has been maintained. Even before you get to that step, looking at the medical board can tell you if they themselves have been sued, which sometimes can be quite helpful, um, and also will tell you if they've experienced any disciplinary actions, which can be extremely helpful, uh, because again, that's a way that your lawyer can discredit them on the witness stand if they claim that they're eminently qualified to be an expert witness and yet had issues of a disciplinary nature on their medical license. Okay, next. If your lawyer has not already done this, and you should probably broach this with your lawyer, is, you know, is this person qualified under the medical expert witness statutes in our state to be an expert witness against me? You'd like to think that in order to testify against a doctor, you you have to be a, a doctor of the same specialty, but that's not even true in every state. There are some states in which any health professional can testify against a doctor. And so, uh, you know, respiratory therapist, for example, could be testifying against a doctor. And if that's the case in your state, you don't have much of a leg to stand on in contesting such an expert witness. But if your state, like California, for example, does require that it not only be a physician, but a physician in your same specialty, and yet here you have someone who's, um, you know, was maybe did a rotation in the emergency department as a medical student and then claims that they know the standard of care in emergency medicine, well, that's a very effective way to challenge and impeach that witness. Again, something your lawyer should know, but they don't always, so it's worth, you know, being doubly sure that they know what they're, you know, what they're dealing with in their state. There are also some commercial legal subscription and consulting services that can do a lot of the legwork for attorneys in terms of finding previous depositions or trial testimony to check for inconsistencies. Make sure that your attorney belongs to or is aware of these subscription services that compile CVs, expert witness testimony, articles, chapters, and things like that that have been put forth by experts. There's, there's two, there's a plaintiff and there's a defense organization that do this. And of course, they mostly compile the things that are relating to defense cases versus plaintiff cases. But if they have access to that file, there's a way to to check through that to see if there have been inconsistencies in the CVs, to see if there are articles that don't support, for example, what they're saying in your case, and to see if there are disciplinary actions that have been uncovered by somebody else regarding your witness. And so that's a shortcut to doing a lot of the work that otherwise the attorneys might have to do. And not only that, but that's something that you, in retrospect, can contribute your materials to. Now, we talked last time about codes of ethics for physician witnesses, but these can be helpful in another way. If the expert belongs to a professional society and it has a code of ethics for physician expert witnesses, your attorney can use that at deposition. If they are out there providing expert witness testimony that does not seem to be in compliance with the policy, if you present that policy to them during a deposition as a lawyer and you say, are you familiar with this policy? And they either say yes or no. If they say yes, you go over it line by line and point out how whatever they are saying or doing or the state of their practice does not comport with the policy. Or if they say no, then you invite them to review it and then you go over it line by line and point that out. It's a great way to let them know in a very contemporaneous way that their testimony is not going to be happening behind closed doors, that it has the potential for being reviewed by a committee of their peers and that if they, what they've done is outside of the, the guidelines in those policies that they could be subject to censure or ethical violations. Pointing these things out at deposition has actually been known to lead to changes in behavior in experts. So pointing that out to them on site at the time of a deposition has, in some instances we've heard about, actually caused an expert witness to get up and leave the room. And when that happens, of course, the case is not over because they can always perhaps find another expert witness, but it does complicate life considerably for a plaintiff's attorney to have to go out and find an expert witness at the last minute. They may have already missed the deadline for naming expert witnesses, and so it could potentially close the case. 
Now, I wouldn't necessarily bank on that, but stranger things have happened in this very strange world. If the expert has ever testified in a federal case, there may be a treasure trove of records to discover. Although the thought of being sued in federal court is very intimidating to physicians, it does happen regularly, for instance if care occurred across multiple state lines. But federal witnesses are held to higher standards than in state courts, and there are copious documents that have to be submitted. Also, if a witness for whatever reason was not found to meet those standards, there should be a record of that also, which might give you some ammunition in your case. In federal cases, um, actually experts are required to provide a statement that talks about their testimony, talks about the scientific basis of their testimony, a listing of all the cases that they've served in as an expert in the preceding four years, all articles that they've authored in the last 10 years, and the compensation that they're receiving for the case. So a note to future ethical experts who want to ever testify in federal court, make sure that you keep all those records. Now, everything that we've just talked about relies on your attorney. I will continue to stress this point, that you may not do anything about your expert during litigation without going through your attorney. But afterwards, after your case is completely done, how do you take action? You take somebody who's got a proper scent of vengeance. Allow me to introduce Dr. Greg Henry. I've known half a dozen who've gone to law school just so they can get even. In fact, it's more than that. I've probably known a dozen who have gone to law school just to get even. He is a legend in emergency medicine, and you simply cannot speak in our field about risk management or malpractice litigation without quoting him. He's a past president of the American College of Emergency Physicians and, among many, many other things, is the former president and case manager of two malpractice insurance companies. And he has served as an expert in many, many cases over the years. What do I mean by many? I've done over 2,000 cases. He regularly counsels physicians going through litigation and also consults with attorneys who want to do right by their clients. I'm frequently retained without the name. That is, I'm not going to be the expert witness. That doesn't mean I can't be an assistant or someone who goes over the case with, with the attorney to prepare him to ask the correct questions. And that's my job, is to make sure that that lawyer knows the major issues involved in each case and forces the plaintiff's expert to uh, commit themselves on these issues. Not all, but most of Dr. Henry's work is for defense attorneys. So as you might imagine, he regularly comes across less than ethical medical expert witnesses. In fact, he knows well the test-a-liar that came up against Dr. M in our last podcast. You know how many times and I opposed each other? Probably 20 times. It's, it's unbelievable. He had a few choice words, but let's just leave it at he is not a fan. One thing that is also well known about Dr. Henry is that he does not mince words, which I like. But Dr. N's expert is not the only test-a-liar around. They can always find somebody who's going to say this crap. That's why you really need to establish who they are, where they're practicing, and a very good question to be asked at the deposition of an expert is, Doctor, you have no problem of this deposition being sent to the Ethics Committee at your state medical society and to the Ethics Committee at the American College of Emergency Physicians. You have no problem with that. Is that right, doctor? Because you wouldn't say anything here which would be questionable, would you, doctor? You'll be hearing more from Dr. Henry in subsequent podcasts, but I asked him about what he's seen physicians do in the wake of unethical expert testimony to seek justice. They can start a campaign, and I know some doctors who have personally sent out the testimony against them to every member of their state chapter of ASEP. I know those who have sent the materials, of course, to national ASEP, where the um, where they have a committee that reads that. Now, once you've been censured and that becomes public record, 
the next time this person goes to speak in a trial, uh, that's why it's important that your attorney know how to query ASAP to find out whether they're under under scrutiny or whether there's been anything passed by the board limiting them. Because when that becomes public knowledge in a trial, it becomes very detrimental to these people. It's important for people to go through this process so that subsequent defendants have the benefit of the action of the professional societies for their cases. And it's currently the safest way for defendants to seek justice after their cases are over with. Those societies generally have a system for submitting egregious testimony that you can find in their bylaws or on their website or by speaking to an officer. That process takes time, but maybe that's for the best. They need to do the due process thing because it allows them time to, you know, put things into perspective. Dr. Andrew also says a little bit of time and perspective is helpful. Wait a bit before you do anything. After a malpractice case against you is concluded, regardless of the outcome, you're, you're hurt for months and sometimes even years, but wait at least a few months before you do anything so that you can think clearly about it. You can't wait forever, as most societies have some sort of time limit on when you can bring a complaint. Most physicians initiate this process themselves or seek another member of the society to initiate it for them. But you do not need an attorney. Some doctors find their prospect intimidating. And when I was looking for ways that physicians might be helped along in doing this, I ran across a physician who does that and who also is one of those physicians Dr. Henry mentioned who got sued and then went to law school. I'm Jeff Siegel. I'm founder and CEO of Medical Justice. We are a membership-based organization focused on keeping physicians from being sued for frivolous reasons. More broadly, we help uh, doctors and patients de-escalate conflict. And I will say from the outset that I am not affiliated with Dr. Siegel or his company in any way, but I did find his story and what his company does to be quite interesting. I am a neurosurgeon by training and I was sued for what I perceived to be a frivolous uh, reason. So the single expert who was um, co-opted to testify against me, um, he had actually been expelled from our professional society in the past for delivering frivolous testimony, yet there he was on the circuit opining yet again about a spinal procedure he had neither seen nor done, but that didn't prevent him from, uh, from actually weighing in. How did this guy who had actually been disciplined by our professional society, and that would be the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, how was it that he was still able to testify and he was out on the circuit? And the truth is the money is good for individuals like this. He was making a great living uh, testifying against doctors, and for the most part, he mostly testified uh, against uh, fellow neurosurgeons. And I thought there's got to be a better way. And after his case was completed, Dr. Siegel took action. I filed a complaint against him in two professional societies and prevailed. And in parallel, we formed an organization called Medical Justice. So Medical Justice was designed to level the playing field and give doctors a collection of remedies after their case uh, was over. It would give them a way to at least feel that justice was served if they had to go through a two to five year process just defending their good name. We've had a number of cases where our members or clients have come to us after a case saying, hey, I won or I lost, but the testimony that was delivered was absolutely and entirely frivolous. In fact, it was testimony that I don't believe I've ever heard these standards of care since beginning the practice of medicine. What can be done? Our organization will help craft and and put together such complaints so that the um, doctor can't submit the complaint on their own. So we think we understand all the details, all the boxes that need to be checked to make this happen. Since starting his company in 2002, Dr. Siegel has heard plenty of interesting testimony and nothing really surprises him anymore. It's interesting. Every time I think I've seen it all, I'm, I'm completely and totally mistaken. He wasn't surprised by the testimony of the neurosurgeon in my trial either, but he did inform me of something. I really can't file any sort of complaint against that neurosurgeon because I don't belong to a neurosurgical professional society. 
It turns out you have to be a member to file a complaint. The, the key thinking is that you have to be a member of the organization to file a complaint because otherwise the organization does not have immunity. And there was a case in Florida, it was called Fullerton versus the Florida Medical Association. And someone was really irritated with how Fullerton testified. And so Fullerton, I think, was an out-of-state internist. I can't, re- I can't remember exactly what he was. But anyway, someone sent a note to the Florida Med- Medical Association this is during their tort crisis. And the FMA said, yeah, his testimony was particularly egregious. And then Fullerton ended up suing the, uh, the Florida Medical Association. And he ended up winning. And here's why he won. He won because he wasn't a member. He was not a member of that organization. So for the most part, every organization got the memo and said, uh, we will listen to and adjudicate complaints for our members. So this makes it tough to get satisfaction when physicians from other specialties testify against you. You could find someone who's a member of that association to submit it for you if they thought it was egregious. It doesn't have to be their case. Now, I know we're running long on time, but one other thing I thought about was, is it possible to sue an expert witness for unethical testimony? The answer to that is pretty much no. I've never seen anyone actually successfully sue an adverse expert witness. And let me explain what I, what I mean by adverse expert witness. So you've got two witnesses, one on each side, defendant and plaintiff. And the case is generally a battle of the experts. You hire your own expert, the patient or the plaintiff hires their own expert. So if you, if you wanted to sue your own expert, you know, meaning that they... You know, they should have followed the own standard of care for delivering expert witness testimony. You could do that. If you want to sue the other side's expert witness, and that's what I think you're asking, that cannot be done. Dr. Andrew agreed. A warning about suing expert witnesses, which is what everyone feels like they want to do, is that there is an absolute protection against defamation claims against expert witnesses in every state, which is designed to preserve the integrity of the judicial system and make sure that witnesses will be available to persons who seek relief. So it's not a good idea. Bummer. This has been a long podcast, so let's take a minute to recap. We started off talking about my case, and by the way, I've thought about this case every which way for a dozen years. I've heard the opinions of many true experts, and I still can't find a way to make it all fit together. We heard some lines of testimony from an expert witness in my trial, which gives you not only a flavor of the formality of the court, but how some expert witnesses are trained to espouse a theory and hammer it home, trying to sound convincing to the jury, no matter whether it makes any medical sense at all. And you got a sense of the frustration of the defendant, who has to sit and listen politely, waiting until their attorney helps them rebut these theories when it's their turn on the stand. We talked about things you should know about how your attorney can look into the background of expert witnesses and look for inconsistencies in previous testimony, disciplinary actions, or ethics violations that can be useful to confront them with in deposition. We learned about the different standards for witnesses in federal cases. And we talked about what the standard of care actually is in a legal sense. And although many physicians with a, quote, proper sense of vengeance, as Dr. Henry called it, have sent the testimony of their experts far and wide or gone to law school and started companies to help defendants however they can, generally the easier and safer route is to file an ethics complaint with your professional society, and most have an established method for doing this. You can do this on your own, following their instructions, or you can seek assistance from other members or even an attorney or a company like Medical Justice, though that does come with a fee. It's difficult to file a complaint against a physician who is in a different field due to the precedent set by Fullerton versus Florida Medical Association, and in general, you cannot successfully sue an adverse expert. Now, as I said before, many physicians are really just very tired when their cases are done. They just want to forget about it and move on with their lives, and I can really understand that. But we are all indebted to physicians who stick to their guns and take action against testiliers because it can be truly helpful to defendant physicians who come after them. Which brings me back to my favorite physician with a proper sense of vengeance and justice, Dr. M. I'll let him finish his story. 
I, I did it again on another lawsuit to a guy from New Jersey, this guy who came in, he, he gave all kinds of ridiculous testimony. It was a farce. I mean, he just, he just, he, he basically tested, his testimony was that it's against the standard of care to discharge a patient from the hospital on crutches if there's ice and snow on the ground. And, uh, you know, it was a joke. So I, I filed an ethics complaint against him. And uh, ASAP said, yeah, this is absurd. You can't do, you know, you can't testify to this. And so they publicly censured him too. But he was stupid enough to challenge that. So I got a phone call from ASAP that said, hey, listen, you know, this guy is going to challenge this this censure. He's hired an attorney. Uh, He wants a hearing, which is his right. So we're going to have a hearing uh, about this with the full board of ASAP. So it's going to be in in Dallas uh, in in July. Can you can you make it here? I said, you know, if you had this hearing on the moon on Christmas, I find a way to get there. Okay, so I threw my own dime. I got a flight to um, Dallas, and then it was really it was a pretty crazy hearing. I mean, uh, it was myself on on one side, and him, you know, and his lawyer on the other side, and then the full you know twenty two member board of ASAP. Uh, on on the dais, like a bunch of people in the back, it was like a C-SPAN hearing. It was crazy, and we each got to tell our stories. And after you know, fifteen or twenty minutes of kind of going back and forth with each other, then the ASAP board got their crack at him. And for the next three and a half hours, each member of the board of ASAP said to him, "Why do you testify that it's against the the standard of care to discharge a patient on crutches if there's ice and snow on the ground?" You know, I, I practice in Buffalo. I would have the hospital filled with people for seven months because we have no ice and snow on the ground. And he, and he would be like, well, it's not, it's not exactly what I said. I go, oh, wait, wait, let, let me read from your testimony on, on page 43. And they would read, and you just to watch this guy's whole career just just sort of crumble. At one point, the guy just turned all gray and he got all diaphoretic. And I said, holy mackerel, I think the guy's got an MMI. But he, uh, it was, that was probably the most gratifying thing about this whole experience. And then ultimately, uh, at the, when it was all over, uh, ASAP upheld their, real, their, their ruling and uh, the public censure was, was upheld. So... He keeps his head down. He's smart enough to do that, uh, not to poke his head up again, because, you know, I'll I'll be there to (laughs) remind him. And thank goodness for that. A few final points before we end. If you serve as an expert, again, I want to remind you to learn how to practice your craft. I know that many physicians who serve as experts want to do the job well, but have never been taught about how to do the job ethically. And if you are faced with an ethics violation and you have a conscience, this too can be devastating for you. Dr. Henry tells the story of one physician who took his own life in the aftermath. We had one guy kicked out and uh, in his depression following that, he committed suicide. He agrees that that was a tragedy, but he wasn't in favor of his recurrent unethical testimony either. All of this has me reflecting on how can we make this system better? Many of us have dreams of overhauling the whole medical malpractice litigation system, but that is an enormous and arduous undertaking. But perhaps we could, as professionals, find a better way to educate and regulate our own. One idea Dr. Henry put forth to me is to have it be mandatory for expert witnesses to declare their activities to their professional societies and have their testimony available for review. Make sure that every expert witness's name is listed in publication and summary of their testimony so that everybody knows who's out there doing it. It'd have to be listed, and I think that would be helpful. I think it would, too. And Swami also had a suggestion. I don't have any basis for this. I don't know very much about the law, to be honest, but... I think an ideal system would be one where physicians in a specialty are all required to be expert witnesses for a certain percentage of cases during a year. And you might not even get called in a year, right? I mean, you might get called every other year, every fourth year, almost like jury duty, where you have to give expert witness testimony. It is not something that is reimbursed uh, or it's a minimal reimbursement. It's a compensation of the time that you lost from working, but it is not a real compensation, a a $500 an hour or $1,000 an hour, whatever gets paid. And sometimes the fees are that high. I think that that would be a more ideal system or or a panel of doctors that reviews these things and decides what is within standard practice. I think the system we have now just is encouraging people to say things that they don't believe or to make themselves believe things that aren't really true. 
I want to leave you with these sentiments because I have hope. I believe that we as physicians have the agency to work together to make changes. We have to be creative. We have to ask our leaders to be brave, to take on the challenges that will naturally ensue from lobbyists or plaintiffs associations or serial test liars who have millions of dollars on the line. But this is important. The system as it currently is, is broken. And if you've been listening along, you know what's at stake. Thank you to Dr. Andrew, Dr. Henry, Dr. Swaminathan, and Dr. Siegel. There's more to come, so stick around. In our final episodes of this regular series, we'll be talking about preparation for trial and trial itself, and the effect of all of this on you, your relationships, and your family. We'll finally talk about life after litigation and the hope of changing both the system and how we prepare young doctors for this eventuality. Until then.